Hi, this is Lisa, and you are listening to I Love That Movie. This podcast is for movie lovers. It's not an unbiased opinion. It's not a straightforward review. It's just a couple people talking about a movie that they love. The format is each week I have a guest, and that guest and I discuss a movie that they love, something they're obsessed with, something they connect with. We'll talk about the plot, the director, and the actors, but we'll also talk about the personal connection my guest has with that movie. So if that sounds like something you want to listen to, keep listening. Hey guys, before you start today's episode, I just want to let you know that we will be talking about a movie that was directed by Roman Polanski, and due to the nature of the crime uh, that he committed and the things he continues to be accused of, I did want to put that on your radar in case that is a sensitive topic for you. I totally understand, and um, you know it's an issue that I take very seriously, so I just wanted to give you that quick heads up. We obviously do not praise him as a person. Uh, we both agree that he is terrible and um, you know we are just mainly talking about this movie but I did want to give you that heads up Uh, so with that uh, enjoy the show hey this is Lisa and you're listening to I love that movie Uh, and if you want to catch up with me on Twitter you can find me at the ILTM podcast Um, I'm also got an Instagram um, I love that movie and if you want to hang out with us in our Facebook group uh, it's just a safe space for movie lovers to discuss their favorite films, judgment-free, and it's just called I Love That Movie. Just send me your request and I'll add you. And my only rule is keep it positive. Uh, I've got nothing really to plug today except that we still have t-shirts if you want those on Teespring, and the link will be in the description. So that's pretty much it. Please subscribe and rate the show because it helps us find new listeners. Um, I have a recurring guest today. I have Scott. Say hi, Scott. Hi, Scott. Hey. Um, I, if you listen to this podcast at all, you've probably heard Scott on here before. <laughs> I, I mean, honestly, it's, this is like number five for me. It, not like I'm counting or anything, but I'm like, I, I'm waiting for the point where Lisa's like, Scott, we're good. You know, you're, you've, you've, you've hit your limit. Go home. You're drunk. That will never happen. What, what's your, what do you think is your favorite episode that you've done in the past? Just so I can give a recommendation. Oh, I'm going to be honest. It's somewhere between my first two. It It's either Mask of the Phantasm or Casino Royale, because those two were really fun to do. Yes, yes, I totally agree. Yeah, no, I, I, you know, those movies are so great. And so, yeah, guys, go back and listen to those. And that's brave of me, because those are earlier episodes, and I'm still recommending them to you, so go back and listen to them. <laughs> but if they haven't heard those episodes, and pretending like, you know, I think everybody that listens to this knows that you've brought a lot of listeners to my podcast, but pretending like they're brand new and haven't heard of you, can you introduce yourself a little bit? Yes. Well, I'm Scott. I am one of the co-founders and co-hosts of the Suicide Squadcast and the Suicide Squadcast Network, where we discuss DC Comics, movie, television, and comics. Uh, You can find us at SuicideSquadcast.com for all four of the shows in our network. And, you know, we, we... we're just a whole bunch of lovable geeks talking about movies, TVs, TV shows, and comic books. So it's it's lots of fun. That's kind of why my very first episode of this podcast was a Batman movie. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
it was really fun so go back and listen to that one uh what movie are we talking about today though oh we are talking about the 1974 classic chinatown i love this movie i i mean it's just oh for so many reasons and as always when i come on the show i try to make sure that every movie i pick for the next my next appearance is like a different genre than something else i've done before but also is like if you want to know me yeah i was gonna say this is pretty on brand for you (laughs) i'm about to say if you'd like to know me and my movie taste well belly up to the bar because this one kind of checks that film noir box that i just absolutely adore we kind of touched on that when we talked about the singing detective which Mm -hmm. was much more of a like a weird indie film but this Mm -hmm. is like full-blooded film noir i'm so excited to talk about this movie yeah i feel like we've flirted with talking about the genre like you know you did I don't know, like there's some notes and with some, you know, mob stuff with like James Bond and uh, we did uh, some like it hot. And uh, and like you said, the singing detective. But this is our full blown our first full blown like noir story. Oh, yeah. And yeah. Ooh, is it a is it a serious one? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So starting off, uh, I guess before we get into your, um, you know, feelings on the film and, you know, how you first saw it, I'm going to read the synopsis really fast. OK. Okay, here we go. 1974, Chinatown. Uh, I'm going to give the synopsis, but I'm going to keep it really short and sweet because I just, I can't really say too much without ruining anything. Um, And there's so much I want to talk about. So it's just going to be a sentence. Okay. Okay. (laughs) All right. So the gist of the movie is a private detective hired to expose an adulterer finds himself caught up in a web of deceit, corruption, and murder. Ooh, dun, dun, dun. Ooh. And that's it, because I want to talk about it, and I don't want to, you know, get too much more into it than that. Um, So, Scott, when did you first see this movie? Okay, I was racking my brain, because it's one of those movies that's, <laughs> I, I've got, like, a window, but I like, but it's always just kind of always been there in my life. Like, it's one of those movies that you, you hear the title, you know. Oh, certain, yeah, and it's quoted a lot. It's quoted a lot. I mean, forget it, Jake. It's Chinatown. You know, mm-hmm. or the, hey, kitty cat, you know, they lose their noses. <laughs> you know, there, there are scenes that you just like, if you are either just a film buff in general or specifically a film noir fan, there's just, they're just images that just permeate from this movie. It, sure. So I, I, I do, I did double check with, with, I did call my dad. I was like, dad, do I have a VHS <laughs> in your closet at home? Say, like, nope, nope. Oh my v- gosh. I, I was, so I was like, okay. So it had to be DVD, which meant probably it was college. Okay. I, so I either bought the DVD or it was one of those that I checked it out from the library, as we discussed with Some Like It Hot, how mm-hmm. I just, I, I would go through the classic film section of a library and just pull out anything I hadn't seen yet. That's awesome. Well, as you know, as I admitted to you and as you gleefully responded to, I had not seen this before. And my jaw (laughs) dropped. And then I had another reaction of, yes, another one I pulled. Like, I feel like I've done like three in a row on you now. It's like, I haven't seen this movie. I appreciate that, you know, because it's like, there's so many movies I've seen. and And I love talking about movies that I've seen a bunch of times. Of course, you know, there's always classic films that I've, I love. And so I just love gushing about them. But, you know, there's a lot of movies out there that are classics that I haven't gotten to yet. I mean, that just for one reason or another haven't seen. Um, I'm going to be brave and admit something 
that's going to make me sound pretty, uh, pretty ignorant to the film noir genre, but, uh, I had a, I had like a perception of this movie, you know, it's, it's in color, it's in the seventies, it's starring Jack Nicholson. And, you know, I, I'd always heard good things about it, but I was like, I don't know. I, I'd rather see like a black and white film and set somewhere else. And that's kind of, in my mind, that's what I wanted to see when I saw a movie like this. Okay. And I, <laughs> and it wasn't until I guess I, you know, had seen more of those types of films and read a little bit more about it that I was like, no, you know, this is like something that I've really missed out on. It's just weird how you can just have a perception of something. And so you kind of avoid it, you know, just oh. because you don't know a lot about it. Oh, no, I, I get you. Because because when you're thinking of film noir, you're thinking like a 40s. Mm-hmm. Bogart movie, like that's right. you're thinking Maltese Falcon, The Big Sleep, you know those yeah. kind of films, yeah. But when you don't take the time to get to know a genre and, and read about it and understand it, you have a perception, and it may not be a hundred percent accurate. You oh, know, absolutely. And, <laughs> and and to be fair, Chinatown does kind of fall into that category of what's referred to as neo noir. It's, yeah, exactly. It, it's not it's not original noir. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But all the tropes are there. Mm-hmm. And and they play with that. And and that's what I love about Chinatown is because it is it is a noir detective mystery. And I love that. It is a mystery. There are clues. You can figure the you can figure parts of this out as you're watching the movie. And that's always a big deal for me. I hate the movies that they just randomly say, oh, here's the killer, and there was absolutely no way you were going to be able to figure that out as the movie Yeah, it's like Scooby-Doo or something like that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. But this is a movie that I was watching it last night, and I can't tell you how many times I've watched this movie, but it's been a while since since I sat down and watched Chinatown. And as I was watching it last night, I was like, Oh my God, that clue was there like an hour ago. And like, and, and the dots started to connect for me. And it's, and it's kind of fun when a movie, like, even though I know how the movie ends, like those subtle details, if you haven't seen it in a while, you can forget them and still like relive it all over again as you watch the movie. Well, for watching it for the first time, I watched it Sunday morning and then I watched it again Sunday evening because I felt like. Yeah, because it had so many twists and turns, and they're not obvious. And I feel like this is a movie that is known for having, like, you know, the best screenplay ever. But at the same time, I talked to a lot of people this week that haven't seen it. Like, even just running it by, like, my parents. You know, Really? Like, yeah, they were both like, I think I've heard of that. And it could just be that, you know, maybe in the 70s they were just really busy um, with life, and they just didn't get a chance, or maybe they just weren't huge film buffs back then but it you know I kind of and then I asked some friends like hey have you seen this movie and a lot of people said no so I think it's one of those movies that is often recommended and it's you know well loved and I think when you're in sort of a film buff bubble you know it's like we're all like oh of course I've seen that but it's like outside of that uh, there were a lot of people I met that hadn't seen it, so I thought that was really interesting. Well, I want to go ahead and kind of introduce a little bit of a controversial topic at the beginning, because I, I feel like it's... Oh, okay. It's, it's that was wor- going to be one of my facts. <laughs> yes. Well, I, I think we need to go ahead and address the fact that this film is directed by Roman Polanski. And, and right after, yeah. Or, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, we well, you know, <laughs> and, and and right after uh, his his wife was murdered... And, you know, which will be interesting enough watching that in a in a 
few weeks with Margot Robbie playing her in the new Tarantino movie. Right. But but then, of course, the controversy that surrounds Polanski later on after this film was made. Mm-hmm. I would not be surprised if a lot of people haven't seen this movie if just because they're avoiding a Polanski movie. And well, yeah. I mean, this was also, like you said, it's the last one that he made before he fled to France in 78. So that was only four years later. Um, and I mean, the crime is pretty heinous. And yes. if you read the details of it, I mean, I think I had a perception because when you watch like or, or when you hear about him and other people in the film industry talk about him, they're like, what an unfortunate thing that happened. You know, like they're like they kind of downplayed a little bit. And so you kind of because I didn't grow up in the time that this happened, you sort of get almost like a watered down version of it. But then when you go back and read exactly what happened, you're like, oh, God, you know, that's really bad. Um, and then the fact that it was even in uh, Nick, uh, Jack Nicholson's home. I mean, he wasn't there, but the crime actually took place at his home, too. And I just think like both those things together, it's I mean, yeah, I, I can't say that that didn't affect this movie. And it's not like people are proud to say, like, I'm a huge Roman Polanski fan. I mean, I can tell you, like, one of the things I thought of when talking about this movie is I'm probably going to concentrate a little more on the writer, Robert Town, because, yeah, I mean, frankly, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a big fan of him. Um, I love Rosemary's Baby, and I think this film is genius. But as a person, I think he's a piece of shit. <laughs> no, so, I that, yeah. that and I'm going to be completely honest with you. I agree with you. And, and that's the problem for me is going there are four of his movies that I have seen that I really enjoy. And I own three of them. And then there's a and then I've tried to watch Rosemary's Baby, but I just wasn't in the mood for it. But you it's know, it's pretty has, slow too, it's very you know. Slow it's, yeah. And, yeah. But, you know, he's done a a Macbeth that is considered one of the better film versions of Macbeth. Uh, the Pianist with Adrian Brody. Oh, yeah. I forgot he did that one. Oh, yeah. That was, that was the big controversial one because I think he won. But he had to, like, do a like a, like a, a video chat at the Oscars because he wasn't going to – because he wasn't going to show back up in the country. And then also The Ghost Rider with oh, okay. uh, Pierce Brosnan and Ewan McGregor. Ah, so, okay. But but I have that same thing where it's like, this is one of those times I really have to separate the artist from the art. And yeah. go, you are a POS, but you do make good movies. And, and that's, sometimes that's easier for some people than others. And I wonder if that has affected this film, which, you know, I personally would say is a shame because I do think it's a really good film. I, I think it's a great film, and I, I'll, I'll say, like, I think I take a, a different stance in this instance. Like, I think that uh, a lot of times I'm with you. Like, you know, one of my favorite movies was The Shining, and I was just talking to someone on Twitter today about, you know, the way Kubrick treated Shelley Duvall. Um, for a while, that was hard for me to separate those two things. But, you know, what Polanski did was a crime. I mean, right. it's so much worse. And uh, I think what made it worse, too, is like just because I was researching this film, I was like reading about him today. And apparently he has a memoir book where he's just like, not sorry. And he just, you know, keeps saying like uh, anybody in my position would have done that. And I did it a lot. And here's a whole book about it. And you're like, ooh, that's awful. So I'll say this. I am a fan of this movie and Rosemary's Baby, but 
I, I don't know that I can carry over, like, I don't know that I can comfortably say, like, I'm a fan of him, but that's just my personal opinion. But at the same time, especially when you talk about classic films, and I was telling somebody about this today, I think that's challenging to address, but, and I've said it a couple times on the show, but, um, you know, this situation is a little different because, you know, this isn't, wasn't that long ago, it wasn't like the 30s or something, you know, but uh, I do think that you have to put things in the context of when they came out, and I think that, you know, uh, I don't think anybody watches any of his films and thinks like, I'm fine with that, you know, I'm okay with that. I mean, I think that if he had done this before his career took off, I don't think he would have had a career, and so, I, you know, I never want to say that anybody that's a fan of these movies is like, thumbs up to everything you're up to. Oh, um, no, no, you know? not at <laughs> yeah, all. It's like, it's like so much so that we're addressing it, you know, but, um, oh, no, it's but the, I, it was the elephant in the room as soon as the yeah. episode started. It's okay. I, I was honestly wondering today, I was like, how am I going to say that without, you know, making you feel bad or like accusing you of like, how could you pick this movie when you know it's Roman Polanski? Like I, you know, it's, I, I, I don't want to ever come across that way. And we've actually talked about a few movies on the podcast where, not even the director, but just things happened in the movie that were like, that wasn't cool. That you know? was let's, not cool. Let's talk about that. Um, and I think you can do that. And especially if you're going to talk about any old films at all, it's going to come up. You know? know, Especially an old <laughs> film that in itself is a period piece. Because right. the interesting thing about this movie is that this movie was made and released in 1974, but takes place in 1937. Right. And so you, there's all of these degrees of separation that i mean and there are some things that go down in this movie and i once again spoilers you know this podcast we're gonna spoil yeah the heck there's out of this there's movie. no you, you need to go watch a movie first if you're afraid of spoilers go ahead <laughs> but so things go down in this movie and you've got to realize a few things this is film noir it's supposed to be a gritty seedy underbelly like that's that's the point of the genre is to point these things out you know, when you watch a film noir, nobody you're watching is a good person. Like, yeah. And and I think you said you had a really good point where it's it's inten intentional it's to make you think, because I think a lot of times when we make period pieces, there's a tendency to kind of gloss over some of the more negative aspects of that time. And I don't think that this genre does that. It's like, here's an ugly look at what was happening. And there's a few moments in the film that I'm I'm excited to kind of just talk about and explore when we get there, but I, I even heard some thoughts on it were like, oh, well, it's kind of like this or kind of pointing this out. And I was like, no, nah, I think it's pretty direct. <laughs> no, 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 no. They, you know, they... I think it's I think it's there on purpose. And I think even, you know, Polanski's background with his parents, you know, having died in a concentration camp, I think he was aware of some of the things that he brings up in the film. Um so yeah, I think I think that uh, yeah, I, I've noticed sometimes people will avoid certain movies because it, it talks about something, um, but because the people are in the time period that it takes place in, it's like they think, oh, so you're kind of putting a stamp of approval on this, and it's like, no, that's not. You're missing nuance if you feel that way. Exactly, and <laughs> so. it's the things that in in the genre of film noir, the quote hero or as I prefer to say, the protagonist, is almost always an amoral, you know, the, this is this is a genre I love because film noir literally exists in the world of gray. 
sometimes mm-hmm. even you know, even in its color palette exists in the world of gray. And so when you get a character like Jake Giddies, played by Jack Nicholson in this film, he's not supposed to, while he is your protagonist, while he is your POV character, that doesn't automatically make him a good guy. And mm-hmm. you're seeing him make morally ambiguous choices throughout the film, but it's still his journey and still his story. Well, and I, I also think, if anything, it's downplaying how bad it was at the time. I mean, if you, like, a really cool podcast that I, I like to listen to, I think it's already finished, but it's called Hollywood and Crime. I recommend going back and listening to that or, um, you know, reading a book about uh, policing and, uh, you know, Hollywood during that time. Because I think that, I don't know, I, I think that people don't have a good, you know, they don't have the context of what it was actually like at the time. So I think if they had... That it would even help with with some of that too. Oh, absolutely. Um, before we continue, I want to I do want to spit out a couple quick facts and then we'll dive of, in. Of even course, we, we got the biggest one out of the way <laughs> in case nobody knew who Roman Polanski was and uh, the controversy there. But in addition to that, um, I kind of mentioned already that the screenplay is now regarded as being one of the most perfect screenplays ever written and is now a main teaching point in screenwriting seminars and classes everywhere. Yes, it's actually, this movie was nominated for 11 Oscars, and the screenplay was the only thing that won. Good. Because, again, like, I think, uh, you know, not to say that it wasn't directed well, it was, and, you know, the cast is amazing, but, I mean, the writing is just really good. I know even Jack Nicholson talked about, you know, it was really easy to find the character was already, like, on the page, and so... Um, and it was written for him. Yes, so. it was. It was written for him. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Robert Town has actually the, the screenwriter has actually come out mm-hmm. and said that, which, you know, that seems sometimes like, oh, that's so cheating. But it's also like, but it works so well because that you're like that that man was born to play this role. Well, it helps right. when the it helps when the screenwriter wrote it for him, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just. Yeah, it just fit perfectly. And then the other thing that I had was, uh, you know, Jerry Goldsmith, who we just talked about on this show when we talked about uh, Star Trek First Contact, because he did the score for that, too. Um, And, you know, he did the score for Alien. Uh, He did a bunch of scores. Anyways, uh, you know, he wrote the music for this movie in 10 days and recorded it in 10 days. Uh, And it remains an all-time favorite score of director David Lynch. Ooh. Which you can kind of tell, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. No. (laughs) Connected to that, I love because you know one of the best pieces of music, in my opinion, is the love theme. That trumpet mm-hmm. that plays, yes. And well, the <laughs> trumpet, uh, the trumpeter that that was the first trumpet in the studio who got to play those solos. Apparently, his name was uh, Uan Racy. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Probably not, but he related that Jerry Goldsmith told him during the recording to quote, "Play it sexy." But like it's not good sex. <laughs> He's like, um, okay, <laughs> I'll try that. But that, but that's something that from the very start of the film is so great because you get that vintage-looking credit scene at the beginning, and with that trumpet playing, it's like it just puts you in the mood. It's mm-hmm. like I'm gonna watch a film noir now because right. I'm gonna watch a, uh, you know. It, the 30s and the 40s is a, is a is an era that you give me a certain font in the credits and you give me a solo sax or trumpet and it's like I'm ready. <laughs> I am 
I am there. I am in the mindset for this movie. Yeah, and, and you know, we kind of touched on it already, but uh, this movie pays homage to all those things while still bringing, you know, a fresh spin on it. Uh, there's some things, it, it breaks up a lot of tropes, and that's what makes the, the writing in this movie so good, is that, you know, there's all these beats that we're expecting and we're used to, and the writer is relying on that. He's relying on you to wait for those things to happen, and then he just flips the scripts on it, you know, maybe two-thirds of the way through. Um, and so whether you're brand new to the genre, but I, w- I would almost hope that you've seen a few first, <laughs> so that you can really appreciate you know the sharp left that it takes oh absolutely uh, one one little trivia fact i wanted to throw in because I, I can't wait to talk about the movie oh, was that ahead. uh polanski uh, intentionally used a technique while directing this film that he attributes to raymond chandler who if you're unfamiliar with that name is a classic pulp uh detective novelist he created the character philip marlowe who has been played by everyone from humphrey bogart to elliot gould in various adaptations. But in those novels, they're told in first person. So what Polanski said was the film plays as if we are subjectively following Gittes. So like when he gets knocked out, the screen goes to black and we only yeah. know what he knows. And, and he's in like every scene. He's right? in every scene. scene. Yeah. yeah. Because he is we, he is literally our point of view character. We mm-hmm. can't see something unless Giddes sees it. So that was something that apparently was very intentionally done by Polanski in his direction. Yeah, and I mean, it, I think that's also different from a lot of other film noir where we kind of, we get, a, and w- really with any mystery, it's usually not just from one POV. Like, there's always a little bit of clues sprinkled here and there that our main protagonist doesn't necessarily know. So that's that's kind of different in that way. And I think it makes it more uh, engaging because you're you're with him the whole time. See, and, and, and like I suggested earlier, that's what, in my opinion, makes a better mystery. Yeah. Let me know what the detective knows. Mm-hmm. Give me the opportunity to solve the case with the detective. And right. so that that just, it's another reason why this particular film I have such admiration for. Yeah. And uh, you already mentioned, but, you know, Jack Nicholson as the, the title character, he, uh, I don't know. I was just, uh, it's like, I, li- I like like pretty much everything he does anyway. But um, I don't know. I feel like this is going up there with one of my favorite performances. I don't, I don't know if anything just personally will top The Shining or like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, but this is pretty close for me. This is what, in my opinion, this was a thought I had last night while I was rewatching it. This is like Jack Nicholson's most subtle performance. Yeah. Normal, like, look at all the roles you just rattled off. Yeah, yeah. And he goes to some pretty... <laughs> he goes pretty ext- big. He goes pretty big pretty extreme and and except for the one time he tells the terribly racist and appropriate joke that he hears at the barber shop the rest of the movie he is like the most even keeled i have ever seen jack nicholson in a movie well i was gonna ask you you know after obviously this movie had a big impact with all the uh, oscar nominations and the win uh but i mean i can't i don't know like i feel and of course he's borrowing from other film noir but his performance to me is pr- kind of different from like a lot of the older ones that I've seen. Uh, it, it's it's it feels uniquely Jack Nicholson to me, mm-hmm. uh, but it is subtle. But didn't it remind you like a lot like of Deckard in 
Blade Runner? Oh, oh no, yes. Like, there's yes. no way that they weren't specifically drawing from this film specifically. Like, it's not even just noir. It's like they were like, like Chinatown, let's do that. <laughs> yeah, let's do, Blade Runner basically, Ridley Scott and Blade Runner basically said, let's do Chinatown in the future. Yeah, I mean, down to having, you know, the Chinatown there, or I guess it was more Japan, but still. But, but still. It's very it, similar. <laughs> exactly, and since they both take place in, in a version of L.A., you know, mm-hmm. it, it, yes, I totally get that feel in a way that, which is, again, why Blade Runner is another one of my favorite movies, because it's right. basically a film noir, but a sci-fi movie. Yeah, and and I mean, similar to this, I feel like, I mean, Harrison Ford can be subtle, but he's like extra subtle as Deckard, so that was another thing that I, I thought it was really similar to. Yeah, um... What did you think about Faye Dunaway as Evelyn Cross uh, Mulray? Um, I loved her. Oh, do <laughs> expound, please. Um, well, you know, like I said before, I've seen a few of this genre and I love it. But, you know, she's she's your typical femme fatale, or at least that's what we think at first. But the way she's able to, like, hold back information and emotion in her face and still she's like this towering lady like she's taller than him right like oh yeah oh yeah (laughs) she's this very powerful woman but we're always used to a powerful sexy older and i only say older because usually the women are like virginal and like 18 and she's like 33 so that's old by this standard right so usually if a woman is older and pretty they're like definitely evil (laughs) at least in this genre and so the fact that she's not again spoiler alert uh is so cool to me like i love her character she actually winds up being the heroine in this film and she just goes all the way like she just has such an incredible performance in the film and i to the point of i i read that uh that scene where he's slapping her and she's like sister daughter sister daughter um you know, she asked Jack Nicholson to physically slap her, like, harder. Oh, okay, good. <laughs> I, I'm i going to admit, yeah. that's one of those scenes that makes me uncomfortable watching this yeah, movie. Yeah, it, so. it definitely made me uncomfortable watching it. But then later I read, she was like, just hit me. Like, this isn't working. And he was like, okay. And so he did it. Um, but, yeah, I just think her commitment to the character and just how nuanced and deep she is. I, I love it. I just, you don't see that a lot. And, I mean, there's been some great femme fatales i mean don't get me wrong i'm not saying that i hate every single time they're the bad guy but it's really cool that she's not because that's a huge left turn and she is so smart and so calculated you don't really know that until the end of the film yeah and she's also not played off as a sex pot which yeah yeah i'm not I mean, you see I'm a red-blooded boobs, American but... male. I don't <laughs> yeah. mind the sex pod. I'm, I'm not, don't, right, don't, take, yeah. <laughs> don't take me the wrong way. But it. But once again, it was something that you said earlier. Chinatown as a film takes these tropes, you know, to the point where they could be cliche, and just it, it's a breath of fresh air for the genre. Yeah. Well, there's so many times you're frustrated, at least the first time you watch this movie, with her explanations and her excuses. You're like, give me a, you know, give me a damn break, lady. Like, obviously you're lying. And then later when you find out why she's lying, it really, I don't know, it it makes you stop and think about how we 
perceive people when we don't have all the information you know well she she um, becomes she yeah. becomes the tragic hero of this movie right exactly like you think it's going to be him and in, in a way it is still jake but it's her story too in a bigger way than you realize and you don't really know that till the end oh yeah oh what yeah. an end can't wait till we get to that part yeah well we can sprinkle in some of the other actors i feel like i do agree um, because, you know, there's one coming up that I, I really want to talk about, but let's talk about it when we get to him. Uh, why don't we go ahead and start talking about some of your favorite scenes? Okay. Um, I, I, okay. This is in the scene. I just need to make a general comment. I, okay. the first time last night, I watched my Blu-ray edition of this movie. Ooh. And I got to tell you, the transfer is gorgeous. I, <laughs> here's the thing. When you watch a movie made in the 70s, you can tell normally it was made in the 70s. Like, the 70s right. has a look. I will tell you that this Blu-ray transfer, the, the the HD, which I'm not sure if... Did you watch, like, an iTunes, like, digital copy? Or, when, when I did, but it? I watched I watched like, the, the HD version. Because right. um, I think that's all iTunes lets you watch now. They used to let you choose, but now it's like, this is what you get, and it's usually HD, so... What I saw was really clear. It was very clear. The colors <laughs> really popped. And I really, I really felt it gave this movie a sense of freshness where I could almost forget this movie was made in the 70s. I agree. Yep. I was glad I didn't watch it. It was free on Netflix for a while. Um, and I missed that window. I went to go back and watch it last night and they took it off. And I was like, really? But uh, after seeing the quality that I saw, like, I'm kind of glad I missed it. <laughs> oh, no, I, I agree. Um, I think, okay, this is... You made a comment about how you felt like that Blade Runner was inspired a lot by this movie. There's another movie that I want to call out because of the opening scene of this film. Did you not think of Who Framed Roger Rabbit? <laughs> I didn't, but I love that. I was thinking of like, there were certain scenes where I was thinking of like Touch of Evil or The Root of Evil. Was that what it's no, called? No, Touch Root of Evil. Touch yeah. Of Evil? Yeah. T touch I was of thinking evil. of that because there were some, like, especially the end scene. But no, I didn't think of Who Framed Roger Rabbit, but I love that movie. And uh, because I, I'm sorry, just the, I mean, what a well, that's obviously in L.A. too. It, like, it's obviously it, in yeah, L.A. Yeah. And you've got the the detective who one of their pri I mean, the private eye, the, the cliche that your your primary job is to take pictures of that's a, right of adulterous Dang, spouses. You're so right. Wow, I did not think about that. But so the I whole do time that Curly is going through the pictures of his wife all Obviously, i could think of yeah. all i could think of was patty cake patty cake and I'm just like this is i never one. picked up on that and, and plus when that movie came out i mean it obviously was after this but it would be more fresh in people's minds than it is today <laughs> but but i love that opening scene because i feel like that tells you so much about jake's character he's he, he acknowledges that his main source of income is catching cheating spouses you see the way that he basically has like no emotion over what he's showing this husband and all he really wants to do is get the guy out the door and get paid and mm -hmm. and he's like and, and he's being all emotional he's like please don't 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 touch the blinds i just had those installed like you you just get this sense of you just don't give a crap, do you? You're mm -hmm. you're like rocking this guy's world, and you're like, it's another job. And I feel like that opening scene, once again, going back to the writing and Jack Nicholson's performance, it gives you like this great baseline for who Jake is. 
you know, yeah. he don't care. He don't give a crap. Just, I did my job. Let me get paid. Let's move on to the next case. I, I heard or I watched a video where they say that he's sympathetic in that scene <laughs> to that guy. And I was like, I didn't read it that way. I, I agree with you. I feel like he's very jaded. Um, yeah. I yeah, feel like he's, he's pretending to be sympathetic. And yeah, here's a very... drink. Like, how hard is that to pour someone a drink? Yeah, it's not very. No. He's not really getting to know him or asking for more info or anything like that. Yeah. So I feel like as an opening scene that. Even it pays off later in the movie, which once again I think is oh, brilliant yeah. uh, as as a write as a writing choice. But it, but as a character introduction, I I feel like that's that's what you need to know that this is our main character, this is who you're going to be following, and be prepared because this should tell you everything about the choices he's going to make. <laughs> yeah, is uh, and you know I've seen it twice, but only. In the last 24 hours. So the next scene is the barbershop scene? No, 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 no. Because no. he has to, because right after this scene is when he gets hired by who he thinks is Mrs. Mulray. Okay, then... I had some questions about that scene. Go okay, ahead. go ahead. Okay, so so you mentioned, you know, he's he thinks he's talking to Evelyn Mulray, and we think that too in the beginning. Um, and she's saying, you know, that her husband's cheating on her. And blah, 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 blah. And right away, he's pretty dismissive. He's like, do you love him? Well, why don't you just forget about it? And I just noticed that was such a huge contrast to how he handled Curly, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, next he finds out he's really rich. And he seems a little bit more interested after that. But why? I, I guess that's just how it was at the time. But, you know, why... It's almost like he was more interested in protecting and he was more like he was less likely to take the job if it was a woman, a man cheating on a woman. No, no, I'm around. there what with do you. you. Think? I was there with you. on. I had I had two ways of thinking about that. OK. I thought the same thought you did that he's more inclined to take on a cheating wife case than a cheating husband case. But then I also thought. Did he give Curly the spiel when he took the job on? Like, I'm yeah. kind of wondering if this is his way of going. Because you can imagine a private investigator taking on a, a a marital dispute case, and then they get angry at him when they prove their suspicions correct. Sure, and, and, yeah. And he might just be doing a cover-your-own-ass kind of situation where he's like, I want to make sure that you are fully committed and prepared for what I could deliver. And also kind of, and the subtext being, and are you going to pay me when I, when I ultimately piss you off by proving you that your spouse is a cheater? So there's a part of me that wondered about that. Like, is it because it's a cheating husband instead of a cheating wife? Or is just, because he's doing it so like flatly is this just sort of a general you know disclaimer at the beginning i want to make sure that we're all on the same page before i take your case because yeah, i don't want to i don't get... know i was curious about it but i you know i don't i don't know for sure either way it's i just don't kind know of... but i but do not feel like you're the only one who had that question when you're like wow don't you want the work like, yeah, it's like I, I I just wondered: is it a commentary on the time, and is it a little bit of foreshadowing later? Because I do feel like 
you know, people are treated differently depending on what end of the spectrum they're on. Oh, absolutely. So, that, you know, that could be it, too. It's just, yeah, just curious. Um, but, yeah, he takes he takes the job basically after finding out she's rich and that it's high profile and juicy. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, and, and even then when he starts tailing Mulray, uh, it's... It's brilliant, in my opinion, because he's already starting to get the clues. Because he's realizing, because at first he thinks, this guy's a nerd. I mean, how is he having an affair? Oh, yeah, because he follows him to the water first, right? Well, first he he goes to the town hall meeting he's presenting at. Oh, that's right, that's right. Which really is important when you realize what he's saying. He's like, but because he's disinterested and just looking at the newspaper, you're kind of ignoring this whole part, or at least I did the first time. Right. Like you're, you're ignoring it. And, and if you're not listening to what the town hall meeting's about and realizing that's kind of the whole conflict of the movie, which mm-hmm. was an actual historical event. It was referred to as the California Water Wars. Uh, just made me think like not a lot's changed. No. To, you know? Not but at yeah, all. like I think, you know. Yeah, he he he's with him at that town meeting, and then he follows him out to the reservoir. Know, the, the reservoir, and I noticed that the second time around, I was like, they're basically setting up that this guy is like such a sweetheart almost, because he's like, I don't know, like he's really thinking about the impact that his decisions have on people. Yes, that's what he's out there doing. But when you first watch it, you don't know that because he's just following him. Exactly. But yeah, you're right. You're like you, you suddenly realize, oh wow, Mulray is like the one decent guy in this movie, and, and that's what gets him killed. And that's what gets him killed. Because <laughs> yeah. once again, if you're a decent person in a film noir, you are going to die mm-hmm. because you can't. If you're decent, you can't survive in this dog eat dog world that a, that a noir right. is going to present. So, and you're right, this it, does play into the plot later, but it's also a red herring, which is kind of cool. It's like both at the same time. I know. Because you get so distracted by all this water stuff, and it's important, it's big. I think every time there's a murder, we expect that there's some big conspiracy, some grand reason why something as senseless as someone's death would happen, but then you find out that it's not, and it's just personal. I don't know, I just love that about it, too. So, you know, he, he does eventually see Mulray with a young lady. We don't know any details. So once again, as an audience, we're thinking what Giddes is thinking is like, oh, here's the here's the homewrecker. Like here, right. here's the here's the thing that he was hired to find out. And then when it and that's when it jumps to the the barbershop scene, which took me aback. I mean, I've already seen this movie multiple times, but I forgot how subtly you're supposed to completely pick up on the fact that the pictures he took are on the front page of the paper. Yeah, and I wanted to say real quick, too, something I didn't notice the first time, but I noticed the second time around, we never see that girl up close Mm-mm. for a reason, mm-hmm. you know, because from far away, she's just a hot blonde he's hanging out with. Absolutely. And he's kissing her. I mean, like, there's just so much there. But anyway. Yeah. Um, and, she's, right. he, and she's younger than he and, he, and she's obviously younger than he is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Again, all about perception and how sometimes when we don't have all the answers, things can look a certain way, which is kind of a commentary even on his job, right? Because yes. he takes these pictures and embarrasses him and that whole family. And it's like, for what? You know, in the barbershop scene... 
the other guy that's getting shaved is criticizing his line of work, especially because I think at the time it was relatively new. Like now we live in this time of constantly pulling skeletons out of people's closets, but this was, you know, a big deal um, to embarrass somebody like this. And, uh, you know, he, um, Jace, Jake's character uh, says, you know, or Jack Nicholson's character, Jack and Jake. Why does he, why is he always Jack or Jake? That's so confusing. Anyways, uh, Jack, Jack Nicholson uh, gets into an argument with the bank guy saying, well, you know, you foreclose on people. I'm making an honest living. But I think something you don't notice the first time you watch it is I don't think he's just getting heated because that guy's accusing him. I think he's getting heated because it's upsetting. Like he has a crappy job now. Right. Doing something that's bad <laughs> yeah. that he doesn't and, want to be doing. And his intention was not for those pictures to end up in the paper. Like, I, you pick up on That's it. true, yeah. You're, you're re- yeah. He's reading the paper going, why is this, like, like you, like, it, the subtext is, I didn't want this to happen. Like, I don't want this. This is actually bad publicity for me. And everyone's treating it like he did this intentionally. Like, this was mm-hmm. like, ooh, look at me. And he's like, no, this is supposed to be between me and my client, but 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 it's also the case where while he doesn't like it, he definitely doesn't want any, someone else judging him, you right. know, and, about and, what he does. Well, and I think uh, again, some subtext that we don't know yet is that he left the police force specifically because it was corrupt and bad, and he couldn't stand it anymore. And now he ends up doing something else corrupt and bad. You know, so it's like he can't win and it's frustrating. And so when someone calls out the hypocrisy of like what he's doing and like also on the outside, people don't know that he left the police, you know, force because it was bad. I mean, people didn't know that about the police in L.A. then, you know, they didn't know that it was corrupt. So it's like it to other people. It's like you left a respectable job for this. Right. Absolutely. They don't know that he was doing the right thing by I mean, leaving. You know, yeah. Pr- private investigators were 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 considered bottom feeders. It it was right. like you know, the idea that all you do is take, you know, smutty pictures for a living. Mhm. And another thing that I missed watching it the first time is, you know, you mentioned earlier uh the way that the barber calms down Jake is by telling him a racist Chinese joke. Um yeah. To get and, and I didn't realize that the first time when I watched it, but it's like he starts that joke and then Jake later finishes it in another scene, like retells it. But it it works. Like he gets really worked up and then the barber knows him and so he tells him this joke. And that's our first little clue about Chinatown, I feel like, because there's an undercurrent in this movie of Jake hating Chinatown, of having left it, and having some, you know, basically racist attitudes towards Chinese people. And that's what I was talking about earlier where I heard somebody reviewing it and saying like, well, it's almost like he's racist. I'm like, no, he is. No, he is. It it plays into the movie later. Like it comes up and it matters in some of the clues that he misses because of his attitudes towards Chinese people. Like that comes back to bite him. Right. He's dismissive of them. So he's not paying attention to the information he can receive. Right. Yeah, and absolutely. also it, it sets up this idea that like something bad happens so bad that it's just like he hates everything having to do with it, which I'm not excusing that. I'm just saying that's how he is. And so that's how this guy calms him down. I just think that's so brilliant that they're sneaking that in so early on, mm-hmm. like without you knowing it. Right. Because Chinatown just kind of becomes this 
like this this myth this monolith like it is it is it is alluded to and referenced at many points during this movie with no context so it so what Chinatown is especially since the movie is called Chinatown mm-hmm. almost becomes a meta mystery unto itself like it's a mystery underneath the mystery of the movie is yeah. is like you ask as an audience member going what is Chinatown? Right. And didn't they almost not even have that last scene be in Chinatown? Which oh. I'm glad they did. Because yeah. I think you need it. But it's like that's how far removed you're supposed to be from his past, basically. Exactly. Yeah. We'll get to that. Because, yeah, there, mm-hmm. there's a whole story <laughs> behind the ending of this movie. Yeah. Uh, but, yes, because that's when he meets the real Evelyn Mulray. And, yeah, I love how he meets her. <laughs> oh, God, because he's telling that terribly racist joke, and everyone is trying to shut him up, which is interesting because I feel like that informs the way he behaves towards Evelyn for the rest of the movie mm-hmm. because he understands what he is to a certain extent, and yet he actually does try to behave like a gentleman, understanding that Evelyn is a lady, mm-hmm. tries to act that way for the rest of the movie, almost in reaction because of this terrible first impression she gets of him in this scene. Yeah, well, and he's also trying to leave this, like, seedy life behind, and I think he wants to evolve and be a different person, and that's another tragedy to this movie is that that doesn't happen for him. He There's all these situations that return him to, like, his baser instincts. He ends up, you know, being, like, this violent, involved with seedy stuff guy over and over again, despite how many times he tries to get out of it. And yeah, I feel like he sees Faye Dunaway's character as, like, almost like a way out in, you know, a little bit. Uh, but that does not happen for that him. That does not happen for him at all. And so this is when, you know... Like the first twist happens, we realize the woman who claimed to be Mrs. Mulray wasn't Mrs. Mulray. So now the question becomes, why did someone hire Jake to ruin Mr. Mulray's reputation? Because that becomes obvious. This was right. this was a this was a character assassination job. Mm-hmm. But Jake, with his pride, hates being played. Sure. And and like you said, it's the first twist of the film, which it's like there's several times in this movie where a question's answered, but it only leaves two more open. So it keeps you guessing pretty much the whole movie. Yeah. And then, of course, through this is what then happens is we then discover that Mr. Mulray, you know, is murdered. And mm-hmm. which leads to, I feel like, the one of the most definitive lines of this movie like i almost wanted to throw this in when you were giving the summary at the beginning (laughs) of the podcast but when he goes to the coroner's office and the coroner said a man drowns in the middle of a drought only in la (laughs) and i feel like that could be like the tagline of the poster a man drowns Mm -hmm. in the middle of a drought yeah and it and it and it leads to this you know once again it hints at how important water is to this story. Right. But not in the way that you think. Exactly. And it also points to the fact that Jake can't help but get in deeper. And I think you, towards the end of the film, you realize that's what happened in Chinatown, is that he couldn't stand the corruption and the 
deceit that was happening. And even when he tries to get a job like a private detective that's separate from that, he can't help but be pulled in by conspiracy. Like, it's impossible for him to ignore details. Like how his, you know, how uh, you said Mulray was drowned and then he finds out that there was a second drowning um, and the coroner's so dismissive of how it happened and he's automatically like, well, well tell me more about that, you know, and um, we get another clue that way, but it's because he has that, you know, his nature is to find out more than he really even needs to know. He just can't help but explore it. And another cool thing is that because we get connected with, you know, the second dead drowned person was was a drunk. And they're mm-hmm. saying, well, he was found in the riverbed of the L.A. River, which we later realize was one of the locations that Jake followed Mulray to when he was tailing him early in the movie. And, and again, is almost completely dry. And almost completely <laughs> dry. And, 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 and it's Jake dealing with the corruption of no one gives a crap that none of this makes sense. They, right, like, you know the coroner had to know that that was impossible, but he was told something and he just went, all right, I'm not going to question that, I want to deal with it. And Jake just has this almost damning drive to get down. And once again, I, at this point, I don't even think it's for noble reasons. Mm-mm. I think it's still because he got played and he can't stand that. And he's got to figure out why did he get played. Yeah, but I think he's also a little excited by the idea that it's like a huge conspiracy. Right. Because we think that for a lot of the film, there is a big conspiracy happening. It just, and it is related to the the meat of the film, but it's not the full story. It's not anyway, the full story at all, no. And so, you know, and, you know, we can kind of, the, the problem with this is that this is like a two-hour, ten-minute movie, and it right. is intricate. I mean, <laughs> yeah, you can skip ahead if you. I mean, we, we, this is, I mean, I, I, I could not do justice to this film if, even mm-hmm. if I tried to follow all of, all yeah, of all the, the little threads. Yeah. yeah. But I think it boils down to, uh, this, an, another great quote from the film is where it says, you might think you know what you're dealing with, but you don't. Mm-hmm. And I, and that's almost, like uh, a rallying cry of this movie as soon as you think and as you the audience as soon as even jake thinks he's got this figured out another twist comes and the best part about the writing of this film is the twists don't come out of nowhere they all right. feel absolutely organic and natural based on the way the story that's why this script is just so well crafted you talked about how it's mm-hmm. taught in film schools it's like well of course because it's so tight you know it, it there is not a wasted scene or a wasted moment in this movie yep totally agree so i, I guess we kind of i think we've kind of gotten to the point because as he's following all of these you know he, he doesn't trust evelyn he, he doesn't trust his old partner, Escobar, who's now a lieutenant mm-hmm. with the LAPD. He's yeah, trying... it's like, how'd he get that job? Hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And then, you know, <laughs> he's, he's, he's realizing that there's something up with the Department of Water and Power. Like, he's just surrounded by just corruption and questions everywhere. Yeah. And I, I guess you could say, like, we find out that without getting into every scene that it involves, that the water 
that some of it is being diverted to farmers, he thinks, but then when he goes out there, it, it turns out their water was being poisoned, forcing them to use this possible water later. Like, there's something up with the water, and it's in conflict with the townspeople want all the water than themselves, and they don't care about what's happening to the farmers, and yeah. And we're supposed to be in the middle of a drought, yet for some mm-hmm. reason water's being dumped in the ocean, and it's right. like, these things don't line up. And yeah, something's happening. Something's <laughs> happening. And I think this is at one point where there's a, I believe you, there, you hinted at the beginning that there was an actor you wanted to talk about. And I felt like this yes. is like the perfect time. So please go ahead. Okay. So John Houston is Noah Cross, a.k.a. Evelyn Mulray's dad. We find out she's Evelyn Cross Mulray. Uh, and John Houston was the director of the Maltese Falcon. And uh, the uh, Treasure of the Sierra Madre and just mm-hmm. all these classic Bogart movies yeah. that are all classic film noir. And I'm sorry, there is something about John Houston as, a, as an actor that is yeah. just delicious to watch on screen. It's like I mean, yeah, he just comes across so incredibly evil, but you don't know why and you can't put your finger on what's intimidating about him, but... He's just doing it so well. He does it so well. I mean, he, he, you know he's an ass, but you're mm-hmm. trying to figure out why. And yeah, you can't tell, you know, he says things that are very dismissive about his daughter, like she's a jealous woman, she's the, you know, um, I just want to protect her, da 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 And you, you get that you're not getting the full picture, and there's that added weirdness of his former partner was his daughter, his daughter's husband and that is strange in and of itself um and the way he almost intentionally never gets jake's name right yeah and, and I, also how he implies that again i feel like there's a little bit of and and i think that there's some like sort of i guess you know just to be blunt like a little bit of uh, sexism sprinkled in the movie but not for the reason that you think mm-hmm. but i think he's creating a lot of distance in that scene of like i was actually closer with her husband my daughter's kind of crazy she's a very jealous woman you know it's like you don't know why he's relying on those stereotypes yet and then when you find out later it's like oh, oh man, man that is truly evil you know it's so good Ah, uh, yes. And so, yes, I actually believe this was the first, my first exposure to John Huston as an actor, I think, was in this yeah, film. I think it is for me. And so that's just, oh, it's a, it's, it's a great role for him. And, you know, please, guys, go out. It, while you might not see him a lot as an actor, you, you, you owe it to yourself to check out his directorial work. So you owe it to yourself to check out his directorial work. I mean, there are just so many movies. Like you mentioned, the Maltese Falcon. I'm sorry if you're if we're talking about film noir, you can't you can't say film noir and not mention Maltese Falcon in the same breath, right? So go check out his work. Go to IMDb and then just start watching. I'm, that's all I'm gonna say. <laughs> I was gonna throw in not to go on a big tangent. I promise I won't. It's really hard though. Um, the this character reminds me a lot of a real life person and i don't know if he was really inspired by him or not but you should take some time to look up uh the name george hodell and there are things that this character does that are very similar oh yeah to mention it until later yes because (laughs) because there's a lot of there's a lot of 
this script relied heavily on people who, you know, even Mulray is very much based off of a historical figure. Uh, yeah. it, and so, yeah, we'll we'll get to that. Part. Okay. I, cool. I, I think actually, I think we should kind of get to that. I think we're talking yeah, about. Yeah, let's go ahead and do it. <laughs> okay. we, already ta- we already talked about the, the slapping scene uh, where Jack Nicholson has just like had it. Like he, he, he starts to have develop a relationship. Evelyn is like very, uh, very helpful and co- I mean competent is even underselling how she helps him like on the day on the case. And you know they go through this really intense moment, so they end up you know sleeping together. And then Jake just can't turn off the detective part of his brain. So when something smells fishy to him, no pun intended. Uh, you know, he follows her and he sees the woman who he only recognizes as the woman he thinks that Mulray was having the affair with. And he finally has just had it because, you know, a, a clue that he dismissed earlier in the scene was one of the Chinese gardeners saying, it bat for, it bat for grass, it bat for grass. And he's just like, oh, dear God, seriously. You know, he's just he's being that racist dismissive thing until the, that gardener says salt water, bad for grass. And, he, and that makes him go, wait a minute, because the coroner told him there was salt water in Mulray's lungs. And he sees mm-hmm. these glasses that he, you, you saw them like an hour ago in the movie, but it, it didn't register. Right. And he gets it. And then he, he goes to confront Evelyn with the glasses saying, you murdered Mulray. It was in your pond. Here are his glasses. And he's slapping her because he just can't take the lies anymore. And then she drops a truth bomb on him. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I should have picked up on this because I was actually telling Nick when we watched it, I was like, there's a reason specifically why she's the age she is. Because mm-hmm. a lot of times the femme fatale is younger and she's older. And I think it's specifically so that she can have a daughter who's 15. Right, because yeah. what we find out is that her father incestually raped her when she was 15 and so her this other this other woman that we saw with Mulray is actually Catherine uh Evelyn's daughter slash sister sister and I don't think I realized watching this the first time but it's an even bigger truth bomb than that because she had implied earlier that um and you thought it was just to cover her tracks talking about she had been with other men and he had been with other women. Well, it, it, I don't know. I have questions about her relationship with Mulray now. Um, what, were they really in love or did she go to Mulray and say, I'm pregnant? And he was like, okay, I'm going to marry you and get you away from your crazy dad, <laughs> you know? Well, he, well, it wasn't that because she ran away. It sounded like that was the what I heard from her story about how she went to Mexico to have the baby. Yeah. My understanding was that was the beginning of the split between Cross and Mulray was Oh my oh dear god you disgust me you you did this to your daughter. Right, but then he takes her in. I don't know. I feel like I mean I, they probably did have a relationship, but I feel like a lot of it was sort of a you know also out of kindness. Like if he marries her and and takes care of her then the dad can't interfere as much i agree which maybe then means that their marriage really while while their marriage was a marriage of kindness it probably wasn't a marriage of a a passionate love 
Right. So having having things on the side was kind of like that's fulfilling those needs while their marriage kind of was more of security. Yeah, and I don't think I even picked up on that like the first time I watched it and the second time I was like, oh. <laughs> but yeah, like it's it's a huge truth bomb. And that's what I was saying earlier. It reminds me of like a real person because there was a really famous guy that was involved in government that uh, he raped his daughter, got her pregnant, forced her to have an abortion. There was a whole trial about it. No one believed her. Her own mother was like, you're lying. And that just kind of went away for a long time. And now, like, a lot of that stuff is coming out. But it reminded me a lot of that. So I was like, I don't know if maybe they even... It's such a crazy story. Like, I think it would be even more interesting if it was a little bit inspired by that. Actually, I think I read somewhere that it was. Now, I'm not sure if this was stuff that was... The exact same guy or... Yeah. Yeah. Or or people just made the connections to it. But I think it's a little... I feel like it's a little too similar to be coincidental. That's just what I feel. I I just feel like there there's there's just too much there. Yeah, and like even to the point of there actually was somebody that uh, same family where they later had a baby, and then that baby later found out that she was probably the product of her grandfather. I mean, it's like crazy how similar it is. So I think it is from that. But yeah, yeah. So that just that turns this movie into something else. It right. It really does. Because you realize that that really exists to inform Noah's character, but actually doesn't have anything to do with Mulray's death. Mm-hmm. Because Mulray's death really is more connected to the whole conspiracy involving the water. And so it's just, it, this movie just gets so weird. And it, because you have all these strings that, yes, it involves the same people, but they don't t- technically connect to one another. Hmm. I thought that it did have something to do with her daughter because her dad is the one that killed Mulray. But I thought he was killing Mulray because Mulray was standing in his way. Because what we ultimately find out with the giant, uh, larger-than-life conspiracy is, is that Noah Cross has, using his corruption and bribery, is using his connections at the Department of Water his connections at the Department of Water and Power, mm-hmm. to divert water away from the valley, mm-hmm. which is the farmers, yeah, so that the land becomes worthless. Oh, that's right. So that they can buy they, it up. They can buy it up. And then the town hall meeting at the beginning of the movie that we were paying any attention to. <laughs> yeah. Turns out that it's about a water bond to build an aqueduct to the valley that right. once once Cross and his people have bought up all the land, once they divert water back to the valley, it becomes prosperous. And then the city of Los Angeles is going to incorporate the valley 
as part of the city of Los Angeles, and they're going to get like a $30 million return on their investment on the land. Like, yeah. that's the that's the big, giant conspiracy that is kind of like percolating in the background of this movie. See, that I knew. And I knew that, you know, he wanted, he had that fake Evelyn, uh, you know, pretend to be her and investigate him and all that. But I also thought it was like a double thing where he knew that was the granddaughter and he wanted to find her. Because he doesn't want his secret to get out, and that could have also been a reason why he killed him. Yeah. Because he was helping her hide her. I don't know. That's just another thought I had. <laughs> you know, once again, I, I can't tell you how many times I've seen this movie, and this is what makes this movie infinitely rewatchable. Yeah. Is, is, is you're still trying to – because I – I could swear that really when it came down to Mulray's death, it was really just about the fact that Mulray was standing in Cross's way of making even more money. Mm -hmm. And I loved Jake's reaction mm -hmm. to Cross, which is, how much are you worth? And, of course, yeah. Cross just thinks, like, okay, how much do you want? Like, like Cross's automatic reaction, oh, you're asking me how much I'm worth because you're wondering how much I can pay you. And, Cross, right. and Jake's like, no, I can't understand why you need more money. Like, why are you doing this? <laughs> What do you not already have that more money is going to get you? Yeah. Yeah, and, I mean, I can see it that Yeah, definitely can see that. And Houston is just playing it like, because I want it. Yeah, I like, mean, he destroys everyone's life because he wants to. Right. Because he owned the water and power because it was privately owned. Mulray was the one who convinced him to turn it into a public utility. And I feel like Cross never let that go. Mm-hmm. But he also never forgave Evelyn for betraying him. Be oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, air quotes there, betraying him. Yeah. Oh, of course. I mean, I don't. I don't think he. I, I, I don't, but I, don't, I feel but, like he, you know, he he's all about control over everybody, even his own daughter. And uh, when she does what he thinks of as an act of defiance, it's like I'm I'm gonna punish you too. I'm gonna kill you too, and that's the way he looks at it. Right. And and to your point though, he wants to find Catherine. Because, because he, he wants to do it again, I guess. He wants, uh, <laughs> it's gross. Well, it's gross. And he feels like that, you know, he, he, it's almost or he wants a because he's so dominating and mm -hmm. power seeking. He he can't stand the fact that, that he has a daughter out there that he has not been able to control. Mm -hmm. no. Which, again, mirrors real life. There is like a story that is so similar to this where. Like, this girl had a grandfather, and he was, like, showing up all the time, like, I'm your granddad. And the mom was like, don't worry about this guy. Like, it's crazy how similar it is. But, yeah, I feel like that's another layer of just, it's something that I think it just tells us a lot about his motivation in general. It's all just about control. It's not about the money. It's about the power that he it's has over people. Yeah. yeah in general. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And and because of his dismissiveness, you really do see he has this giant egotistical superiority complex. I yeah. am better than everyone else I'm around. Yeah. And he treats everyone in this movie as if you are beneath me. Mm-hmm. And I you know, and then and what you almost don't see going into the last scene of this movie is the giant train wreck that these characters are all headed toward. Yeah, because I think, you know, with Evelyn's character, she was so 
guarded with all her secrets. And I think after you get that last truth bomb from her, I think you believe that the main reason why she could not be honest with him is the shame of the daughter being, you know, an incestuous, you know, daughter. And that, uh, you know, that in and of itself brings a whole nother level of shame and she doesn't want him to know about her. But there's even another reason why she doesn't want uh, the police involved and for Jake to have too much information. And then you find that out in the last scene. Yeah. Now, I wanted to drop this little bit of trivia right now because okay. I think this was very – I did not know this until last night. I, I of course, went to Wikipedia, and I was just like, hmm, <laughs> I'm curious. And apparently Robert Town wanted Noah Cross to die at the end of the movie and Evelyn to survive. And Town and Polanski got into a huge argument over this, and Polanski wanted – the tragic ending. Mm-hmm. They had a lot the, of arguments. <laughs> yeah, I've read just a lot of uh, screaming and TV breaking and yeah. It's oh yeah, the quote time. was: "I knew that if Chinatown was to be special, not just another thriller where the good guy triumphed in the final reel, Evelyn had to die." So, Town and Polanski parted ways over this argument, and Polanski wrote that final scene days before they shot it. Mm. Interesting. Which I will admit, you can kind of feel that that, that ending is like, it's so frenetic. Mm-hmm. It, it, once you understand that it was a complete rewrite days before it was shot, it, it kind of puts the that last scene that finally happens in Chinatown right. you know, into perspective. Uh-huh. And I mean, I think it, it, it feels more real because... I think that sometimes things do come to an abrupt end like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, yeah. It, But I, it just looking at that ending where Jake's bringing Cross to Chinatown. He's trying to tell Escobar the truth. Cross, of course, is doing his dismissive thing. Escobar wants nothing to do with it. Yeah. Because Evelyn... Evelyn yo, go ahead. Sorry. No, you go ahead. <laughs> no, I was just going to say Evelyn's like, you know, they're not going to help us. They're in their pockets. And I think that's what I was alluding to earlier. That's the last piece of why she is so dodgy, the whole film, because she understands how powerful Noah Cross is. She says that earlier in the movie that, you know, he's a really powerful, dangerous man. And I think that's hard for Jake to wrap his mind around. He's like, he's just a guy. You know, I get that he's your dad and he's scary, but he's a man. Um, but towards the end of the film is when it finally sinks in just how much power this guy really has. Right. To the point where he is he is creepily, I mean, just disgustingly trying to rip Catherine away from Evelyn. And when you Eve- see that, you're like, would people let that happen? And I have to think, yeah, I think they would. I think they would, especially when the way the story is being – the way the story is being fed to Escobar is Evelyn murdered Mulray and hired Jake to help her cover it up. And Escobar thinks so little of Jake that he is totally willing to buy into that. Again, about perception, you know, about not hearing people all the way out, about not listening, about not – taking in all the information and context clues and just going off of tropes, you know, which I think this movie is sort of in a way like dissecting. It's like, here's everything you expect. And what if it's not that way, you know, and the characters in the film are kind of locked in by what they perceive to be happening. 
Exactly. And then, of course, and that just pushes Evelyn to the brink where she pulls out a gun, shoots her father in the arm. Of course, part of me is like, could you just have... I wanted oh. her to shoot him in the head. <laughs> I know. It's like, he's so evil. He's a great bad guy. <laughs> I mean, like a headshot, a, you know, double tap, double tap to the chest. I mean, come on, just a little <laughs> bit more to the left. Why did you have to shoot him in the arm? It took me a second to register that she didn't shoot him, like that she didn't wound him mortally. Like I didn't realize that right away. And then later I'm like, no, he's going to live. <laughs> yeah, that's the one part of this movie that like, because – it it's a little awkward like the, yeah. the the choreography of that of that scene where Evelyn shoots cross is kind of awkward it's like it the is. one it's the one part of the movie that makes me go oh, okay you, you you guys just wrote this a few days ago you really didn't have time to practice this did you <laughs> and so she drives away and of course Escobar and his his partner you know all they see is Woman with a gun just shot this very preeminent, you know, person. Yeah, I mean, she looks like a criminal. That Everything they've heard about her is that she's bad. Right. And she just shot somebody. Right. So that seems they, bad. <laughs> so what do they do as she drives away with Catherine in the car? They just start opening fire. I thought that was weird. I was like, um, there's like a child in the car. <laughs> but I guess they don't know a lot about her yet also. so. Well, and if you're looking at the way they're firing, I interpret it as in they really are just trying to disable the car. Yeah, like, that's true. They're not like, I can't wait to shoot her. But they just accidentally do. Right. And it's subtle. But you see the makeup on Faye Dunaway. Like, they blow a hole in her head. Like, yeah. like you see, you see, you see the the exit wound, which is subtle because they don't focus on it, but it's right. there, and you see the hole in the windshield, mm-hmm. and it, it, but what makes it even more unsettling is that because you don't see it, you're playing off all the reactions of everyone looking at what happened, and especially I, Jake, I think, especially Jake and Catherine, mm-hmm. and I feel like that makes it even Escobar. I feel like that's when this moment of oh, crap, you know, kind of settles in for him. Mm-hmm. And Jake is just like, I, I almost get the sense of watching Jake is like, not again. Not again. And then when one of his Well, they alluded to that earlier yes. in the film, too, that there was someone that made him leave Chinatown. Did it have something to do with a girl? You know, of course. And he doesn't get to answer everything about it. You can tell he doesn't want to. Yeah, and also get, just oh go ahead. You get the sense I think you do get the information that he tried to help someone and he ended up hurting her. Mm-hmm. And this and is that, exactly what happens. Yeah. And that's exactly what happens. <laughs> and and also just I think a lot of the film you're just so I think the choice to have him like have that cut nose and for him to get beat up so much, you just get the sense that like Jake is fearless on on a certain level and that he's in control and that you know, no matter how someone tries to trick him or do something to him, he's always going to come back for more. And that I think he starts to believe after a while because he has so many wins that, you know, his luck is kind of turned around and that, you know, he's going to he's going to fix this. He's going to be able to do something right. And Evelyn is so convinced, I think, the whole story almost even though she, you know, concocts this really intricate plan of how to protect her daughter and how to get away and all that stuff. I think she knows that there's an inevitability and all this that it's going to end bad and that she's going to die. I feel like she knew she could never really get away from her father. 
And then at that moment, he's realizing that she's right and that there's that all of this is inevitable and there is no getting away from it. And he's right. literally and back in Chinatown. It's like right. And it, <laughs> and it leads to one of those, you know, film noir is also great for having like classic like closing lines. Mm-hmm. And, and and you get this great thing where like he's just he, Jake is just broken by this experience. And, and his operative buddy just goes, forget it, Jake. It's Chinatown. Like, like that explains everything. Like, yeah, like, and it's also different from a lot of uh, film noir because the protagonist usually learns something or has like a big turn at the end. But this movie kind of doesn't. I mean, he just ends up back where he started, and I like that more. <laughs> oh, ab- absolutely. You know, it's it's supposed to be. This is the world. Yep it it's it sucks. <laughs> it sucks. Yeah, this is the world, and it sucks. And you get the sense that this is all going to be swept under the rug. I'm still creeped up the fact that Noah, that Noah Cross is still holding Catherine. I'm like, oh, dear God, don't leave that girl with him. Yeah, because you get the sense that that's what happened to Evelyn, was that mm-hmm. he was controlling her and terrible to her. And then she finally got away and just still ends up right back where she started. It's like terrible. So, yeah, I don't have any high hopes for that poor kid. Um, I, I will take this opportunity <laughs> To let you know, there is a sequel to this movie. That's true. I did read that. Um, I've not seen it. <laughs> I I've seen it once. I I had it on DVD, and I do own it digitally now. Uh, I am inspired to go back and watch it again. But as a little bit of closing trivia, it was always Robert Towns' intention to write a trilogy following uh, mm-hmm. of Jake. Yeah. You know, the, this first movie in the '30s, set in the '30s, was supposed to be about water. The Two Jakes, which was later filmed in 1990 and directed by Jack Nicholson, also written by Robert Town, was involving oil, and it was set in post-World War II L.A., and that film didn't do so hot that, you know, they never made the third movie, and the third movie was supposed to be called Gittes versus Gittes, and it was going to be set in the late 60s and be about land. So they were always supposed to be like these personal stories interspersed under like these three main resources that are always um, sources of corruption for Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. I love it. They should make a comic book in this day and age. Oh, I would read it like nobody's business. I, mean, <laughs> I would love to read the screenplay for that third. Like, what was I would like to know what that third movie was going to be. Like, yeah. give me a novel because what it feels like to me is: Have you ever read any James Elroy? Mm-mm. Okay, he's the guy who wrote *L.A. Confidential*. Yeah, and he's got like this four book series that like it's the forties, the fifty. It's like the thirties, the forties, the fifties, the sixties. Like every book is a different decade of L.A. And I almost feel like that's what Robert Town was trying to do. With this kind of like Chinatown trilogy. Gotcha. So I, you know, I would, I would say, actually right now the two Jakes is, uh, if you have voodoo, it is free to watch on voodoo. Oh, okay. Good info. So get it while it lasts. I hope, (laughs) and I say that hoping that it, that as of this recording, that it hasn't already left yet. But it was there. (laughs) Hopefully. Yeah. It's one of those sequels that's like. Is does it hold a candle to Chinatown? Absolutely not. But is it worth watching once? Absolutely. Sure. If you want to hear more about the character and the world that he's in, you know, it, I think it's worth it for that alone. Oh yeah. And some of those questions you were asking. 
it could answer some of this for you. Oh, I it's like just, it. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's a little tease. It's, <laughs> it's what we call it in business. <laughs> well, um, I guess we're down to our last two questions then. Okay, hit me with your best shot. Uh, why do you think you've seen this movie so many times? Because every time I watch it, I pick up on something new. It is such a multi-layered film, mm-hmm. and in in I think that is genius for a mystery because there's a lot of mysteries that once you know the quote who done it part, it the movie completely loses its rewatchability. Right. But this is such a textured layered film with such impeccable writing and subtle performances that no matter how many times I go back and watch the movie, I always get something else out of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I you know, uh, actually, I just talked about with Tim in the last episode uh, when we were recording uh, Prometheus that, you know, uh, Ridley Scott also directed Blade Runner. We've mentioned that a couple times here, but a lot of people describe that film as like, you know, sitting around and looking at a lot of photographs and thinking <laughs> and uh, that bores people. I personally appreciate it when there is a detective story where I can see them thinking and we're learning things along with them that isn't like a really silly aha moment of like, oh, I had a dream and a bird was in it and now I know the answer. You know, I feel like there's a lot of Jake taking time and looking at things and thinking, even though there's plenty of action too, but I I just think it's a better mystery because of that. Well, it's a movie that A, demands your attention. Mm -hmm. This is not something that you fiddle around on your phone or your iPad while you're watching. You have to give this movie your complete attention. And I also think you do this movie a disservice if you just watch it once. Right. Yeah. Like like I said, I watched it and then I watched it again right away. And I've only done that a couple times. Um, so, so yeah, I think it, it, like you said, it rewards rewatching and I don't know. I just, I, I've always liked this genre and I want to be surprised and I don't want to guess what's happening next. And I, I didn't this time. So I, I, that's why we'll watch it again. Yay. Uh, so how would you pitch this movie to someone that hasn't seen it before? A man drowns in the middle of a drought. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Simple. It's simple. simple. If that doesn't make you go, hmm and make you cock an eyebrow, I don't know what will. And I would also say, as we discussed at the beginning of the podcast, please don't let the director's name deter you from the film. Let the film speak for itself. That's another thing I would say. Because I do think that that is a legitimate concern, and I can understand it, and the only thing that I could say is, please give the movie a shot. You know? Yeah. Robert Town wrote a wonderful screenplay. Oh, for Faye sure. Dunaway and Jack Nicholson and John Huston put in some brilliant performances. Please don't let what the, the terrible things the director did after this movie was made keep you from watching what I think is an, a quintessential Hollywood movie that, sh- you know, that you should watch. Yeah. I mean, I get it. You know, there's a creepy old man that assaulted a child and then does it again later and that like legit happened so that's creepy but it's a really good movie (laughs) so I agree with you I would completely separate it in that way um you know that was when we were first going to talk about it I was going to focus more on the screenplay because I think that is what is the most unique thing about this film is just how well it's written um and there's a reason why they teach it in classes and if you like the film noir genre, then, you know, you need to you watch really this don't have one. Any, 
you really don't have an excuse not mm-hmm. to watch this movie. It it's it's like on that list of if you want to watch film if you want to watch quintessential film noirs, this has to be on the list. Yeah, and I will say, you know, I think that you should probably watch a couple before this one if you haven't seen that genre before, just because it'll give you more context for what's happening in this movie. But, oh, absolutely. you know, it definitely builds on itself and you should be watching those kind of movies anyway. So I feel like that explanation I just gave you is like a little too convoluted. But you know what? This movie's convoluted. So, you know, and, and not in a mystery. bad way. Yeah, it's not convoluted in a bad way. <laughs> right. That's my pitch. <laughs> um, so, Scott, thank you so much for coming back on. It's always so fun to have you on here and to talk about these films. I, I love having you as a guest and uh, remind people where they can find you. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Scott DC 27. You can also find me on Vero under my real name, Scott McClellan. I, and then, of course, I would recommend that you go over to SuicideSquadcast.com to check out the Suicide Squadcast network of shows where we talk about DC Comics, movies, and television. So find a show for yourself and enjoy. Awesome. Well, thanks so much and have a good one. You too. You too.